Our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. As they are leaving the building or the sanctuary, you can join me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I will read beginning verse 35 down through verse 51. John 6, beginning with verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father truly, truly, I say to you. He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which came down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray together before we begin our study this morning. Father, we do commit ourselves into your good care, knowing the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been given to your church, that you might instruct us and teach us, and that with ears that have been opened by you, we can hear and learn, discern the truth, and by your Spirit, apply it to our lives. So we pray to that end that we hear, that we do learn, and that we are sanctified together as we come under the teaching of your word, as is given here by the Apostle John. We thank you for it. We thank you for the testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he is communicating to his people here this morning. And I pray that you would enrich our lives with this truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we examined the first of the seven great I Am declarations by Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of John. And it's this self-description, as we saw there in verse 35, where Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. It is this theme that is going to carry us through the end of the chapter. It's an expression that created quite a stir among the people, to be sure. And by a stir, I mean there was a division that occurred here. We have seen some disciples that followed and worshipped Christ. There were other disciples or followers of Christ that ended up being offended by Christ and they would walk with him no more, these false disciples. And the sixth chapter of John deals largely with this second group of followers, those that objected. And you can see that in the direction that our text is taking us this morning, beginning in verse 41. And this opposition to Jesus Christ as the bread of life is going to continue in our study today in the discussion that Jesus has with these Galileans or these ones now named as Jews. But with this ongoing conversation, Jesus develops a greater understanding or he communicates a greater knowledge, if you will, of why he was to be understood as the bread of life and what it means to partake of that bread. He further explained how it is possible for any to believe that he is not only the bread of life, but the bread that has come down from heaven. And that's going to be the emphasis of our study this morning, where last week we looked at the declaration of Christ, I am the bread of life. You will notice in verse 41 to 51, the emphasis 
seems to be the heavenly direction that Christ came from. In other words, implying the divine origin of Jesus Christ. And this was of great offense to the Jews. I was thinking of a story that is communicated a lot in my family. So my family members have heard this a lot. But growing up with five brothers, we do a lot of wrestling and scrapping about. And I know that my older brother would often get into a scrap with me and pin me down and cause me such pain until I said, Dave is the best, Dave is the best. There was one day when my brother, Dave, was bucked off a horse and he had a serious back injury. And he was laying in bed and declaring to me that Dave is the best. And I said, no, you're not. And I jumped on him and I took him down out of the bed and I caused him pain for a change. And he could do nothing about it. And uh, we often reflect on that story. That's one of the moments when the younger, smaller brother got to whoop up on his brother because he was in so much pain. And I took advantage of that. I think you know that as people... When we come in contact with other people that says to us, I am better. You remember the days in school. I'm faster than you. I'm better than you at this. I'm smarter than you. Those are the kinds of words that if we happen to be good at something and somebody tells us that, immediately that inward pride wells up to the surface and we think, oh, no, you're not better than me. You can certainly see in our text this morning that these Jewish people so religious and committed to their devotion to God, they hear this voice of this newcomer in town that says to them, I am from God, I am the bread of life. And immediately, what wells up in the side of these religious people? This is what ignites our text this morning, as this interaction between Jesus and And these Galileans escalates even further in the opposition that they had to Jesus as the Son of God. Now we've seen prior to this text that Jesus had these Galileans follow him from the hillside where they were fed with the five loaves and fish. And Jesus magnificently multiplied that meal to feed them all. These Galileans followed Jesus by boat and perhaps some by land back to Capernaum where he has this dialogue with Jesus that takes us all the way to verse 40. But then in verse 41, the Apostle John not only lets us know these Galileans are confronting Jesus, but now he refers to them as the Jews. And that's significant for John because everywhere in John's Gospel when he says the Jews... He means those Jewish people that opposed Jesus Christ for who he is and what he declared himself to be. And that is certainly the case in the passage that is before us. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. And the reason that they were grumbling becomes very clear in the first couple of verses of our study this morning. Jesus declared something of himself And these people were saying, these Jewish people were saying, now wait just a minute. We know who you are. We know your family. Beginning in verse 41 through verse 46, I want to begin here then with this protest or this grumbling over Jesus Christ being the one sent from God, the one out of heaven, and declaring himself to be the bread of life. Now, as the conversation continues between Jesus and these Galilean followers who are now probably intermingled and interspersed with these Jewish people, we see how the content builds in the minds of this gathering. The content of what Jesus Christ was declaring. And another word that we would use here is the discontent. The discontentment they had. The uneasiness that they had the grumbling over the description that Jesus had just given of himself. And John begins by identifying these grumblers now as Jews. And this seems to indicate that out from those that had followed Jesus from the mountain on which they were fed the bread and fish to the town of Capernaum, leading this unbelieving element is is gathering were Jewish protesters. So we likely could be here in the synagogue in uh, Capernaum. When John uses that terminology, again, he generally views those Jews as the objectors to Christ. And so when we look at verse 41, this grumbling that was taking place in this part of the discussion marks now a new level of opposition. You can see it has escalated in the conversation. It has risen to a new height of rejection. 
to who Jesus Christ was declaring himself to be. And this heightened protest may well be why John wants the reader to know we're now dealing with Jewish people, the Jewish element that opposed Christ. But to be sure, it was the Jewish opposition that would continue to pursue Christ and grumble against him all the way to Calvary. They would be the ones that would appeal to Rome for the execution of this one person. And here John observes that these Jewish objectors were expressing their disapproval and condemnation of Jesus Christ as the one sent from heaven. Now, it may be that these Jewish protesters had recently joined the Galilean crowd. But what concerned these Jews was that Jesus had declared himself to be the bread which had come down from heaven. How is it he can say this, they questioned. And the reason that they asked that question is because apparently they know his father, Joseph. They know his mother. And these Jews knew both of his parents were from Nazareth, that dingy little nothing town that at least in their minds was not connected with the promised Messiah. So we can almost understand the disbelief that these Jews were experiencing in that if we were in their position, we quite likely would draw similar conclusions. Here is a man declaring himself to be sent from God right out of heaven, but wait a minute. We know his mom and dad. He's from a little backwoods town called Nazareth. His dad was a carpenter, for heaven's sakes. This man was of no significance to them, and yet he's claiming to be sent of heaven, sent by God. So on the one hand, here is a man that has done what no man has ever done before, and they've seen and witnessed the miracles of Christ. And on the other hand, in their estimation, Jesus had no real significance. How could they possibly consider him to be of heavenly origin? This is a significant part of the discussion for John to add to his gospel account because in presenting Jesus as the Son of God, these are the questions that we're going to ask as well. And the unbeliever in this crowd or the unbeliever that we may share Christ with, they're going to ask similar questions. What makes Jesus any different? What makes him so significant? Why should we look at him as the giver of life which is what bread is meant to communicate to us. Why should any of us view Jesus any different than any other man? That's the question in its discussion. And in response to their grumbling, you will notice Jesus does not answer their question. In fact, Jesus could have caused a dynamic, mind-blowing miracle that would have ended the argument. He could have called upon his Father to speak thunderously out of heaven. He could have pulled back a little of the humanity and give them a glimpse of his true glory. But he chooses not to do that. He chooses not to give them what they're asking for. Rather, he takes them to the problem of human depravity. He takes them to the problem of man's sin of disbelief. He directs them to stop grumbling and then identifies the greater problem with men in their unbelief. Returning to the previous point that it is those that the Father gives to the Son who will not be cast away, Jesus elaborates on that truth in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember we talked about two doctrines of grace last week. God's election and man's depravity. Here they are again. And Jesus brings these doctrines again to the surface. In the previous passage, this same truth of God's calling was stated in a positive way, where Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless drawn by the Father. I'm sorry, that's the negative. The positive was seen in the previous verse, verse 37. All that the Father gives me. They will come. That's the positive that the Father gives to the Son, those whom will be saved. Now, in verse 44, there is a negative side to that. No one can come to Jesus unless drawn by the Father. 
This means that it is impossible for men to come to Christ, to see Christ for who he is, unless the Father intervenes. Jesus again promises to raise such a person up on the last day, but it is not a promise being made to those who have independently seen the light of the truth of Jesus Christ. They haven't figured this one out on themselves. They haven't intellectualized the reality of Jesus. They haven't reasoned out that Jesus must indeed be the true Messiah. Because according to Jesus, they can't. The Father has to intervene. They had to be drawn to the light of Christ by God the Father. And the word that John uses, or actually the word that Jesus uses here in verse 40, the word draw literally means to drag. John 21 and verse 11, John uses again this same word to describe Peter as he's pulling the net that is laden with 153 fish. You remember the story as Jesus is standing on the shores of Galilee and the disciples had gone back to the fishing industry. They'd fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus tells them, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And it is so full of fish, they can't get the net into the boat. So they pull it to shore, and there is Peter dragging that net onto the shore. That's the word that Jesus uses here in John 6 and verse 44. It is used again in Acts chapter 16 and verse 19, where Paul and Silas are ministering in Philippi, and they cause a stir by casting out of a demon, out of a young girl that was telling fortunes. And the masters of that girl realize at once, we're going to stop the income source here now that this girl is no longer demon-possessed. And so they take hold of Paul and Silas and they drag them before the authorities. It is the same word that Jesus uses here in John 6 and verse 44. This is what God does with the one he chooses to bring to his son. And we can find within this expression, once again, that men are crippled in sin such that they resist coming to the truth. Even when the truth of God stood right before the eyes of men and performed miracles, giving substantial proof to his divine nature. In this picture, the drawing of God goes beyond enticing a person who is in a kind of passive or neutral place of understanding. Years ago in early church history, the Pelagius viewpoint pictured God dangling a carrot in front of a mule or a horse. And that was the enticement they saw in John 6 and verse 44. But this is not the picture that Jesus gives. It's not that the gospel was enticing to men, but rather God is drawing against the resistance of disbelief. So what Jesus is doing here, he's answering their questions, he's answering their disbelief by showing the problem, once again, of human depravity. There's a sin nature problem in men. And this is why they could not believe. God must draw against the resistance of disbelief. These Jewish grumblers were perfect specimens to prove the doctrine that Jesus is now communicating to them. Prior to faith, every one of us were grumblers. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 45, quoting from Isaiah 54, that in this drawing of sinners to the Son, God teaches these ones what they must know of the bread of life and their need of Him. These ones drawn by God will hear and will learn of Jesus Messiah, the eternal life that He alone provides, and they will come to Him just as we learned in verse 37. Look what he says in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This was the promise that God made through the Old Testament prophets. Remember how God foretold of the day that God would take away the heart of stone that is within men and would give to them a heart of flesh. He would put a new spirit within man. And in addition, he would send his own spirit to dwell within. It is what we call regeneration. We looked at that 
from Ezekiel 36, back in our study of John chapter 3, as Jesus articulated to Nicodemus that you must be born again. The Spirit has got to come and make us alive. The Spirit has got to take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. As Isaiah 54 says, all of God's people will be taught by Him and they will be established in righteousness. Isaiah 54, verse 13 and 14. Some are likely going to argue that what John 6 suggests is that man is able to choose from himself from that phrase, they shall all be taught by God. And the assumption is that since God gives a measure of light to all men, it is then up to men to decide for themselves to come to Christ of their own free will. Yet Jesus completes that statement by adding that these ones taught by God will hear, they will learn, and what else? They will come. They will come. And therefore, if after hearing the gospel, men and women choose not to come to Christ, they most certainly were not drawn by God to the Son. They most certainly were not taught by God. Because according to what Christ says in verse 45, all those that come to Him have been taught by God, and they will hear, they will learn, and they will come to Jesus. James Boyce adds to this by writing that the quote from Isaiah 54 verse 13 is speaking of the true sons of God and not all men of the world. And you can reference Isaiah 54 and verse 13 on that point. What this teaches is that when we speak of God's elect, we are referring to those whom God has drawn to a son. He has opened their hearts and minds to hear and receive the truth. He's taken away the heart of stone given a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God has caused their spirit to be made alive in Christ, and the heart then is made receptive to gospel truth, no longer hardened against it. And these ones, now called and taught by God, will come to the Son for life and are declared to be the children or the sons of God. Once again, this teaches a doctrine of grace. It is the irresistibility of the grace of God when that heart has been opened up, that heart is learned, that heart is believed, and that heart has been drawn to Christ, and they will come. When the blinders are taken off of the eyes, the blindness of sin is removed, and the dead soul has been made alive by God, they see the beauty of God's grace in redeeming us through Christ and we will not refuse it. Verse 46, Jesus then affirms his right to speak gospel truth to these unbelievers. None of them could claim to have seen God. Only the Son has seen the Father. And because of this, Jesus is the teaching presence of God, as one author put it. On earth, Jesus was the teaching presence of God. That's what he's declaring in verse 46. So that he's saying to these Jews, not a one of you has seen God. There is only one. And I am that one. And I've come to speak to you the truth because I am the bread that has been sent out of heaven. I am the teaching presence of God. This is the declaration of Christ. For these Jews to reject the word of God through his son is to reject God himself. And this is so because Jesus Christ is now the representative God because he is from God. So to summarize, all men grumble against Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who is the bread sent from God to provide eternal life until God draws men to his Son. And in drawing men to Christ, God opens the heart and mind to be taught the truth of his Son so that they might believe and come to Christ. And come to Christ they do. This brings us to verse 47, where Jesus goes on to articulate the truth about this bread from heaven. In verse 47 and 48, Jesus passionately emphasizes a truth that men must understand and embrace. Verily, verily, I say to you, 
That's one of those expressions. Truly, truly, I say unto you. That's one of those expressions where every heart should look and say, this is a truth that we need to understand. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, earlier in verse 28, the crowd had asked Jesus what they should do to do the works of God. And you remember the answer of Christ. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. The declaration of verse 47 has an implication of a gospel invitation as it is set in the context of this whole discourse. So it has a sense of being an invitation. But more to the point, and more particular to verse 47, is that it is a declaration or an assertion of what God has done in drawing the sinner to his son. He's making a statement, in other words. And that statement should draw sinners to Christ But Jesus is declaring something, a truth about himself. In being drawn to Jesus Christ, God has replaced the heart, made the sinner alive, and taught this one the truth of the gospel. And faith is the result of this divine intrusion into the soul of the converted one. And this is why Jesus uses the present tense here in verse 47. I say to you, he who believes has, present tense, eternal life. This is so because the Spirit of God has caused this one to be born again. And the result of that new life is faith. The truth of Christ is once again affirmed in these words. And I think we can look at this declaration, or his argument, if you will, in terms of three assertions, beginning with Christ asserting his identity once again. And this is consistent with the very point of John's gospel narrative, that sinners would read this testimony of Jesus Christ. They would come to know him as the Son of God who gives life, and that believing in him, they would be saved. They would have eternal life. This is what Jesus affirms in this discourse. He is the bread of life. The life that he gives is eternal, and those who believe will have possession of that eternal life. The identity that Jesus affirms throughout this debate is that he is from heaven. He is sent from God and that his will is bound to the Father's will, that he gives eternal life. He will raise up in glory all that the Father gives to him and brings to him for salvation. So the divine and heavenly identity of Jesus Christ was critical to this discussion on eternal life. And this is what those Jews balked at. Because after all, they're the religious superior ones, are they not? They're the ones that had all the spiritual knowledge of God himself. How dare this common Nazareth come to them? Or Nazareth man, this resident of Nazareth, this carpenter's son. How dare he claim that he is from heaven? Jesus affirms, no indeed, the one that believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What Jesus then does is invite men and women to come. And you notice his invitation. Come and eat. I'm the bread. Come and partake. He reminds these Jewish people that God sent manna from heaven and their Old Testament fathers picked up that manna and they ate. And it sustained life for the moment. But as Jesus said, in the end, they died anyway. Not so with the bread that he gives. Eating in this sense, eating of Christ in this sense, speaks of coming to Jesus in faith, trusting him fully to be Savior and Lord. We have just learned that to truly come to Jesus is to be drawn by the Father, to be effectually drawn by the Father. And in drawing sinners to his Son, God is teaching them, and they hear, they learn, they believe, and they come to Christ. These are the ones who embrace the biblical Jesus by faith and they trust him to save their souls by virtue of his bloody sacrifice, his atonement on the cross. They surrender to him as Lord and master of their life. And as Jesus says in verse 50, they learn that Jesus is the bread of life sent by God out of heaven to rescue the souls of men. And this brings us to a third assertion. 
his inheritance, what he offers. Come, partake of me. I invite you to eat so that you may have eternal life. Jesus makes a promise to all who are drawn to him in faith by the Father. The one who eats of this bread, he says, will not die, but will live forever. And I like the word inheritance here. I think it's helpful because it points us to the hereafter. But notice, it's in again the present tense. It is declaring to the believer, you own now the hereafter. You own the inheritance. You're in the will. And it's guaranteed by a covenant promise. Now clearly, Jesus is referring to a spiritual death here. Even though in the previous verse, in speaking about the Old Testament fathers who ate the manna, he refers to their physical death. They ate the manna, to be sure, but they're all dead now. Physical death. And then in verse 50, this is the bread. I am the bread which has come down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Clearly, Jesus is no longer talking about physical death. Because if he was talking about physical death, the idea of raising these ones up on the last day wouldn't make any sense. If they're already physically alive, why are you raising them up on the last day? So Jesus is clearly referencing the spiritual life, the eternal life that he gives. And what Jesus is letting us know by promise here is that for every believer, that life has already begun. When Jesus promised that such a believer will not die, it means more than gaining the positive virtues of heaven's inheritance. Truly, it does mean that. It does mean that we will live forever. We will live forever in the presence of Christ, surrounded by the glories of heaven itself. But Jesus means more than that here. It means that this soul or person will not experience spiritual death or eternal judgment. By faith in Christ and in his sacrifice, sins are paid for in full and forgiveness is granted by God. And as Paul said, there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. So for Jesus to say here in verse 50, they will not die, he's declaring you won't experience eternal damnation, the fiery judgment but you will live forever in the presence of the king and surrounded by his glory. Jesus is emphasizing yet another one of those doctrines of grace, isn't he? It's the perseverance of the saints, eternal security. You can't be lost to him if God has done this drawing work in your life. If he's been the one that has taught you, you've learned, you've heard, you've come to Christ, you can never be lost to him. You will not die. What a rich promise this is for the believer here this morning. And what an invitation to those that are here this morning and yet apart from Christ. For Jesus to assure believers that they will not die means that they will never face spiritual death with the eternal torment that goes with it. And they will live eternally in the presence of God, surrounded by the heavenly glories that belong to Christ. This brings us to verse 51. Sinful men do protest heaven's bread. The truth is told of heaven's bread. And now we see the work of heaven's bread in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now to this point, our discussion of Jesus as the bread of life has been to recognize the analogy in and of itself. The bread is to represent Jesus Christ. But Jesus goes one step further in verse 51, giving greater depth to the idea of bread, eating of it, and the eternal life that it provides. Verse 51 summarizes all that Jesus had been saying of himself with one critical addition. Notice again, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In this text, 
Jesus not only teaches that which is required of men if they're to have eternal life. In other words, faith in Christ. But Jesus is already also articulating what is required of Him that we might have eternal life. I will give for the life of the world my flesh. Here Jesus alludes to the sacrificial atonement that he will make on the cross just one year from now. Back up to the beginning of chapter 6. And you remember that we are a Passover season. That's now the second Passover in the Gospel of John. What happens on the third? It's Calvary. So Jesus is predicting, declaring, foretelling. A year from now, the next Passover, it will be me. I will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I will give of myself my flesh. Another distinction is found in this passage. Jesus is referring to himself now as the living bread instead of being referred to as the bread of life. A minor distinction maybe, very subtle perhaps. But this distinction between these two terms, Jesus is communicating that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's declaring, I am the living bread. I'm the author of life. I'm the creator of life. That's how John started this gospel, wasn't it? In the beginning was the Word. Everything came into being through that Word, and nothing was created that has been created apart from the Word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am that living bread. I have life to give. In him was life, and the life that he gives is likened to a loaf of bread. You partake of it, and you have life as well. And the implication of verse 51 is that he must give up his life that men might be granted life. It's why Jesus said that he is the bread to be given for the life of the world. The bread given was his flesh, he says here. His flesh will be offered up on the cross. He's declaring his humanity. Now, this verse may not be articulating the incarnation directly, but it's certainly the truth of the incarnation that gives a foundation to the atonement that Christ is speaking of here. He came down out of heaven. God himself has come. And he's taken on a body of flesh. And I, Jesus says, must give that body of flesh that you might have life. Jesus was sent by God. He came down from heaven. He took on a body of flesh that he might represent his people on the cross, bearing their sins in his humanity. And in this way, the God who became flesh for us gives the bread of his flesh to those whom the Father has drawn to him. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world, it's my flesh. He's referring to his humanity. God came down and took the body of a man, became one of us, and represented us on the cross of his own suffering, bearing our sins upon himself and taking the guilt and the condemnation that should have been ours. Now, before we leave this passage this morning, there is one more doctrine of grace represented here that we need to consider. Because if we've given a casual glance to verse 51, it might be argued that Jesus is saying that he made atonement for every person in the world. The danger in coming to this conclusion, however, is that we have just removed verse 51 out of its intended context. And we dare not do that. The final doctrine of grace that needs to be considered here is referred to as limited atonement. Perhaps a better way to say that is particular redemption. Now, while verse 51 is not a comprehensive defense of this doctrine of particular redemption, the truth that Jesus Christ is communicating here rests squarely, it rests squarely on particular redemption. From our previous study, these four doctrines of grace emerge very clearly Man's total depravity, we saw it last week. We saw it again in the text today. God's election, we saw it last week. We saw it again today in verse 44. Eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. 
based on the covenant promise of God. If you're in Christ, you're secure in Christ. And certainly we've seen the irresistibility of God's grace. All that the Father draws to His Son, they will come. But if these all together are true, then the salvation of men's souls was not merely made possible on the cross of Christ, but it was made certain for those whom God had chosen to save. And if this is the case, what does Jesus mean by saying that he will give his flesh for the world if in fact God has already determined to save his elect? Back in verse 33, Jesus said, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. We studied that verse together. And it's easy to conclude in verse 33 that when Jesus said, I came down out of heaven as the bread to give my life for the world, he is not saying that all of the world will be saved. Rather, he's declaring that out from the world there will be those saved, Jew and Gentile alike. As we move further into the dialogue that Jesus has with these Galileans, he makes clear that these people of the world who will receive eternal life are those ones whom the Father will give to him, the Son, for salvation. And all those who the Father gives to the Son will be saved. They will come. He will not lose a single one of them, but he promises to raise every one of them up on the last day. This is a specific chosen people out from the world that God has determined to save. We've already considered those doctrines. And therefore, as we come to verse 51, the context of these people from the world has already been established. They are the ones whom God has chosen to draw to his son. He has given them a new heart a heart that hears and learns what God has taught them of His Son. And they come to the gospel of that Son. They believe in Christ. They have eternal life. And Christ will raise them up to glory on the last day. Because of these established truths, the ones in verse 51 that have eaten of the bread of life, who are of the world, are the ones that God has chosen and brought to His Son. And Jesus says with great clarity, I will give my life for these ones who are of the world. These are the ones who have been drawn by God to eat of the bread of life. They've partaken of the flesh of Jesus Christ by faith. It is my view that being faithful to the context of John 6, the world that Jesus references here in verse 51 whom he's given his flesh to on the cross, are those ones that God has particularly drawn to his son. Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people in particular. Now I know that to make a complete statement in support of this doctrine would take far more time than we have this morning. And while it is true that this specific doctrine of grace is the most difficult to wrestle with, There are just far too many passages in the Word of God for us to ignore. I put a few of them, just a few of them, down on your note sheet. In Isaiah 53 and verse 8, we read that the Messiah would be stricken for the transgressions of His people in particular. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, remember the angel visited Joseph, and he spoke to Joseph and said, You are to name that infant son Jesus. For he will save his people, his people, from their sins. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus taught his disciples that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not the whole world, but give his life a ransom for many. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said himself that he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is the sheep of his pasture, according to John 10 and verse 3. Ephesians 5 and verse 25, husbands are commanded to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? Her. He gave his life up for the church, not the whole world. 
it is quite possible that this doctrine is troubling to some today. And I realize that we could disagree on this point and still love each other in Christ. At least I hope that we would. But in my view, it makes the gospel of Jesus Christ even more certain. Rather than just making salvation possible but uncertain, it declares that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he declared it is finished, he knew exactly the saving success that he had just accomplished. He knew what he had done. And more than that, the father knew exactly what his son had accomplished. John 6 is a powerful proclamation of the certainty of God's salvation in Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. He knew exactly what that would accomplish. He knew the ones from the world that his son would die for because he had chosen these ones from before the foundation of the world as we read last week in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. I've included in your bulletin a statement written by John Murray. I'll just commit that to your reading later. It's a lengthy statement, but he gives that statement in defense of this doctrine of grace, the doctrine of particular redemption. The point in this is that Jesus fully kept the Father's will when he gave his flesh for the ones that the Father gave to him for salvation. Jesus came to save his people, not merely to make salvation possible. This was the work that God had sent his son to accomplish it was the work intended by God for his bread that he sent from heaven. Now, much of our study this morning and last week has considered the doctrines and the understanding of the salvation of Christ. The very image of Jesus Christ as the bread of life or the bread that has been sent out of heaven represents the gospel perspective. And for those of us that are saved by the gospel this morning, it may appear that these things are very theoretical but not all that practical. There's not much to apply to our lives. But that's not necessarily the case. And so in our closing moments, I want us just to consider a few things that our text means to us as believers. And I hope this morning that if you are an unbeliever, by now you see the declaration of the gospel is found in the person of Christ. This is the one in whom we are to put our faith, that we ha might have life eternal. But going over these doctrinal truths that you and I believe and affirm together as believers, is there a practical context to this? And I believe that there is. Beginning with, because men and women must be taught the truth of Christ by God, the church can do no better than to preach the truth of Christ. God is the one who teaches the heart. We just learned that. He's the one that must draw the sinner to himself, open up the heart, take away the heart of stone, give the heart of flesh, give to that one a new spirit. You and I can't do that work. We can't convince people of the gospel. We can't take away the stony heart and give them a heart to believe. So what do we do? We just preach Christ. We need to be faithful to preach the truth of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's our obligation. But I believe there's a second obligation we need to consider. Because the world is called to come and partake of Christ by faith, we are called to make the bread attractive to the world or before the world. To make it appetizing. To make that bread desirable. And I believe this is what Jesus meant when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works, right? We have to show them by our lives, our words, our testimony, the goodness of Christ. No, it's true. I can't persuade the heart to believe. But we need, as a church, to portray the bread of Christ as attractive, as appetizing. And we do this by living our lives before the world in honesty and integrity. Showing the world our love, our kindness, our forgiveness. In our marriages, in our families, demonstrating Christ. That's why Ephesians 5 was written. So that husbands and wives would accurately portray the church and its relationship to Christ, to the world. How do we conduct ourselves in business, in our neighborhoods? How we live before the world is a reflection of the bread of life 
And it should be our goal to show the world how good the bread is that has come from heaven. How we enjoy Christ and how we delight in him. And third, because we have eaten of heaven's bread, we ought to live prosperously, prosperously on God's provision. We have eternal life presently. His flesh was our necessary food. And now we live as those who are well fed by God on his son Christ. Romans 8 speaks so well to this. Paul saw the sacrifice of Christ as the mark of victorious Christian living. What God provided for us in the death of his son grants to the believer success and security. As Paul wrote, we have been called, we've been sanctified, we've been justified, we've been glorified. In verse 32 of Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? These all things are not talking about big expensive homes and fancy cars. It's all things Christ. All things that God knows that we need in Christ. And he doesn't leave us starving, hungry children, but we're well fed on the bread. Verse 37, but in all these things, We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Our salvation can never be taken from us. Christ intercedes for us daily. His love for his church, it's constant. It's unbreakable. He provides all that we need according to his perfect will. So Paul says we're mega conquerors. Do we live as those who are well fed on Christ? Do the temporal prosperities of this world deceive our hearts away from the bread of heaven, all that Christ provides us. Are we content? Are we satisfied? Are we well-fed Christians? We are to live prosperously on God's provision because Christ is more than enough. And that, friends, is a testimony to the world. It is also an encouragement to one another, fellow believers. We need to live prosperously on Christ and his provision. Father in heaven, As believers, we are well-fed in Christ. And shamefully, all too often, we can get distracted away by the prosperous things of this temporal world, the fleeting passions of sin and pleasure. And I pray as we learn more fully who your Son is and how we feed on Him, that we will find our satisfaction and our contentment in Christ and in Him alone. We're growing in this, and we thank you for that growth, that sanctification. But Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ Jesus, your Son, the bread you sent out of heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.